Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, entrepreneur in residence at Red River West, co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to Tech Deciphered, episode 43. This will be the first of a series of two episodes on AI, AGI, generative AI. A lot has been happening in the past six months, and we felt it was a great time where not everything is clear yet. The fog of war is still intense. There is probably a little bit more visibility into where things are going. It would be with pleasure that we will talk about this deeply fascinating topic. And for sure, one of the topics most discussed today in tech, you know, maybe we should start with trying to define what is AI, what is AGI, what is generative AI. Easy task. <laughs> <laughs> AI is what is in the name. It's artificial intelligence. It's typically seen as a branch of computer science that is looking at creating mechanisms within machines that in some ways are similar to human intelligence or practically speaking would refer to human intellect. Now, as we know, machines can't think. Well, that's still true today. So they do this through very complex mathematical models that get implemented normally through software and hardware combinations. And then within artificial intelligence, there are different fields of artificial intelligence. In the good old days, people used to talk about weak AI versus a strong AI, which is more general intelligence, where weak AI is normally more focused within a specific field of solution set. General AI and strong AI will eventually become our overlord and think better than us. Nowadays, you will hear a lot of different things around artificial intelligence. You'll hear machine learning, you'll hear deep learning, you'll hear about natural language processing, computer vision, etc. All of these fields are fields of artificial intelligence that intend to emulate what we as human beings do. So computer vision basically would look at the automatic analysis of things that get processed through vision. Could be video, could be pictures. Natural language processing is looking at the interaction of machines and computers with natural languages and human languages, the language that we have. Deep learning, I would allege, is a subfield of machine learning. There's still a huge argument on that or whether deep learning is a different field or not. I normally see it as a subfield of machine learning where deep learning normally uses things like neural networks. We'll talk about neural networks later on, which are trying to emulate how our brain structures thinking effectively. In a nutshell, AI is a field of computer science. It's an evolution of computer science. 
machines can't think for themselves. So they do this through very complex algorithms and techniques that normally use a lot of mathematics and quite a bit of data. Although we'll also have a discussion today on how much data do you really need? Are we past the times where you need massive amounts of data or not? In some cases, these techniques and algorithms also need to be trained. So there needs to be some sort of training mechanism, potentially even human in the loop, basically telling the machine whether it's classifying things appropriately or not. For example, in computer vision, is this really a monkey or not really a monkey? If you're trying to classify a monkey, it would be an example of that. But again, that's in generic terms what artificial intelligence is. Yes, and to build on what you just said, interestingly enough, the field of AI started probably at the same time as computer science per se started, so in the 1940s. So it's a space that's been alive. I can't say well all the time, but definitely alive and kicking for decades. Interestingly enough, it has probably been a field that started, I don't want to say too early, but definitely more early than we had the computing power to achieve what we were dreaming. And that has probably created a lot of AI winters. If you talk to people experienced in that field for the past decades, they have known some boom and some incredibly long period of bust. 10 years, 15 years, where no one would want to invest in anything called remotely AI, given some past experience of promising a lot and under-delivering. I think things changed around 10 years ago, with the advent of the latest GPUs from NVIDIA, with the advent of new coding paradigms like CUDA from NVIDIA as well, that let harness the power of GPU for this type of task much more easily. And obviously some new techniques in deep learning that let you train better and at more scale. And of course, the availability and advent of digital data at scale. Because since the 2010s, we have the internet, we have books, we have content, we have audio, we have video, we have photos, we have everything online. So suddenly accessing data that you can use to train at scale model became finally much easier than it used to be. So a big dramatic change. What we are probably mostly going to talk about today as roots of 50, 70 years ago, but really was enabled in the past 10 years. And to be clear, and just picking up on what you said, these have mathematical roots in things that have been around for many decades. Neural networks are not new. We're now talking about you know, convolutional neural network CNNs, recursive RNNs, adversarial we're going to talk about Transformers. Transformers is probably something more recent. It's sort of an adaptation, which actually is credited with Google, which is funny because it's deeply used by OpenAI, but Google were sort of the guys who came up with it. But in general, if we look at the field, it's been around for a long time. The mathematical basis of the algorithms and techniques that we use in AI today have been around for decades. To your point, what has fundamentally changed? If I had to sort of synthesize it and summarize it, computational power, obviously with the advent of GPUs, now there's even ASICs, so there's specific semiconductors that are very, very focused on the processing of certain techniques of AI. Computational power has definitely changed. Availability of, the, of data at scale and the ability to process that data at scale and access data pipes has obviously changed a lot. I would say networks have changed as well. Latencies have come down. So if you want to process stuff in the cloud or even in your own processing power in your own device, that has obviously simplified the whole story of it. So in some ways, it's brute force. It's like, if we think about it, it's like a lot of data, a lot of compute, and it's brute force. And now we get AI. I think this is an important point because this will come back to why our AI agents or our AI overlords will not kill us immediately <laughs> because it's still brute force. They're not really intelligent. They're just doing stuff. We'll come back to AGI, to general intelligence later on. 
but let's leave that positive note for now. They're hopefully not going to kill us anytime soon. And brute force is a good point because ultimately a lot of researchers argue that we are still very, very early. In many ways, if you look at the way a human baby, animals are able to do stuff that AI still cannot do today, they always point to the fact that we can learn much faster with much less data in some ways. At least that's one way to look at it about the world around us, the current way we train uh, this machine. So in a way, it is definitely a different type of intelligence we are building today with what we call AI. It's not human level intelligence and it's not trained the way you would train a human being. So it's very different beast and that's something to always keep in mind when you talk about AI. What about generative AI? We've all been listening to it and I'll open the hostilities and then you can sort of tell us the real truth about generative AI. I'll open the hostilities by saying that in my opinion, generative AI is not generative at all. And it's a very poor choice of words that someone at some point made on what generative means. I think it means generative within the context of the neural networks that it's running on, but it's not really generative. It's more of an aggregation of things. It's sort of something that comes after something else that makes sense for that thing to comes after something else. And that is true of images, it's true of text, it's true of a variety of other things. Sadly, that's what even GPT stands for, Generative Pre-Trained Transformers. That's a cool name. I think that's the first thing I would like to sort of debunk. Generative is not generative at all. These things are not creating things. We'll come back to that later on regulation and a bunch of other IP issues. But what is generative AI, Bertrand, as we see it today? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it always go back to how do you train these models? Have they truly invented something from scratch, from zero? Is it built on or near entirety of human knowledge? And at the end of the day, it is built on the near entirety of human knowledge and definitely way more knowledge than any human being could have gathered around their life, at least consciously or at such a scale. The idea here is that you, you learn a lot about specific topics be it coding, you would scrape at scale different websites focused on coding. It could be a GitHub, for instance. It could be a Stack Overflow in terms of data. And we can talk later, but regulations are changing. Terms of service are changing of these websites. But you scrape everything that's there. And when you receive requests for support, for help, when you are automatically trying to complete a computing task, you are gathering in a way at scale that data and getting it out from the system adjusted to the local need. And that can be very powerful. But basically, it's transforming that existing knowledge at scale to a specific context and trying to find the best fit. And as of today, there are a lot of shortcomings. Some shortcomings are that it's simply, in some cases, actually, it has been proven, it's, it's very close to copy-paste some examples. And that's obviously a big issue, especially if we think about IP uh, concerns. Another piece of the puzzle when you are generating is obviously in that context, you're as good as your source. So if your source is extremely biased for some whatever reason, you might have some real issues in terms of output. And one question would be, are you as biased as your source or are you even more biased? I have seen some interesting analysis where in some cases, it seems that the output was actually even more biased than the source. So that's another interesting question. Do you want to unbias your source? Do you want to stay as biased as your source? That raises a lot of questions, including ethical questions. At the end of the day, when we go to maybe what's most exciting these days in terms of chat AI, 
one thing that is quite obvious in many situations is that it's not trying to really understand what you are asking. It's trying to guess what's the best word that should come after your question and then the best word after that and then the best word after that. And in some situations, it might look very appropriate. But in some situations, of course, it makes no sense. I was looking one of the latest running joke. It's uh, spell this word in the opposite direction. No current chat program is able to spell a word in the inverse direction of the world. That shows how some very, very basic stuff, and obviously a lot of calculations are, are plain wrong, some basic stuff are, are still not achievable by such an approach. And the other piece, uh, maybe to finish, is when we see generative AI applied to chat, for instance, at the end of the day, it's sort of average. The average answer to your question as it is on the scraping environment it was used on. So if it's scraping Wikipedia or the internet, it will try to find you the average answer you can get on the internet or on Wikipedia or on whatever. So that means that if the outside world is biased, is wrong, or is uh, very partisan, it will be some sort of average answer of what you can find. So in some ways, the power to the people who are <laughs> spreading the more information on the internet, they might not be right, they might be wrong, but they will be the one winning that sort of war to influence indirectly some of these agents. So that's something to really keep in mind. Right now, there is no reasoning. There is no trying to make sense from basic axioms. It's all about simplifying, averaging at scale what they can find in their scraping. Yeah, this is mathematics, probability, statistics, picking up on very large data sets. And you guys probably have all heard about this, right? There's large photo data sets, large video data sets. There's large language data sets, the famous LLMs, large language models. So it's picking up these big data sets and then trying to figure out, okay, this is probably what should be next in that sentence. That's the answer you're getting when you're going on to ChatGPT. Now, as you alluded and quite well, that doesn't mean it's truthful. And you guys can run areas of expertise that you might have, run searches on BARD or ChatGPT, whatever tool you want to use. And you'll notice this. You'll notice that in areas where you have deep expertise, the answers you might be getting back are actually wrong. Or they might be mostly right, but there's something in it that's wrong. There was a study done recently, I can't name the name of the hospital, where they did some checking of using what would be the advice given, given certain symptoms, treatment of certain illnesses, treatment of certain conditions. And the conclusion they got to is, by and large, the artificial intelligence agents are basically, I'm communicating through, let's say, a chatbot. The answers I was getting were really very good, were very empathetic by the chatbot, which was cool. They were actually, for the most, spot on correct. But once in a while, the process that was prescribed by the agent, so the agent in this case is acting as a doctor, the process prescribed by the doctor for the treatment of that specific issue or condition, once in a while, there was a step in it that would cause the death of the patient. Now, that's a bit of a problem, right? <laughs> you can't be right 97% of the times and then be wrong 3%. On a lesser note, I did this search, I remember. Now, if you go and do the same search, it won't show up like this. This was still on ChatGPT3, not on GPT3.5 or, or 4. But if you look, for example, how many venture capital firms are there in the U.S.? and how many venture capitals are there in the world, you would immediately realize it's wrong. It can't be possible that those two answers are aligned because the numbers I was getting back were both from 2021 and the numbers didn't make sense because if you just did the math, it didn't make sense. But it was worse than that. When I ran this on GPT-3, the numbers I was getting was getting sourced to a study from a specific publication, in this case, Crunchbase, 
And the dangerous thing is that Crunchbase never published a report with a number of VC firms that exist globally that year. And that's when it gets really scary is you're asking questions and they're giving you answers that seem very assertive and palatable. But basically, this is just false. It's literally fake news because they'd never published a report on that. And so my advice to everyone is I believe the tools that we have today with GPT, be it GPT-4, with BARD, with Claude, with all the tools that we have out there, just be cautious in how you use them. Triangulate the information. Go back and search for the information. Can you find the report that it's quoting to you? So I see it as a directional augmentation layer. It's great. It provides you sort of, okay, in particular, I think this might be the size of the market, or this might be actually the competitors in this space, or this might be actually the number of actors and players, et cetera, et cetera. But it's directionally correct. It's not fully correct. And the same with, for example, using stable diffusion when you're generating art, et cetera. Be cautious that you're not using something for your own purposes, in particular, their commercial purposes, that is reusing stuff that actually is copyrighted, that is coming from another source, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's a great augmentation layer. It's directionally interesting, in most cases, correct. In most, 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 majority, not always. But be careful what you use it for. Don't make life or death decisions based on it. Don't generate entire theses on investment or theses on your strategy as a startup based on it. Just cross-check numbers. You just triangulate, etc. We're still far from having very truthful information being provided by these tools, by these platforms. Yeah, I think at this stage, it's mostly untrustworthy. It depends, obviously, on your need. If you are trying to generate a poem, you probably don't care. <laughs> if you are trying to generate some type of image... As long as the human beings look normal and you have something that looks good, you're happy. Obviously, there was a lot of issues, especially in the past, about showing you the wrong number of fingers when you generate fingers, for instance, that sort of stuff, but it's getting better. But for sure, there are a lot of instances where you are looking for specific information where, where it's just completely wrong and totally untrustworthy, at least at this stage of the game. We have been using it at Red River for some automatic competitive analysis and, for instance, one thing we saw is that it was working quite well, actually. But where it was not working quite well was when you asked for a top 10, a top 20 of competitors in a small market, in a small geo. And then suddenly what you notice is that, yes, yeah, some are very good and then some are completely off. And you realize that it's trying to find your top 20 competitors. But if your market is too small, after it has found the four or five obvious ones, after that, it starts making them. <laughs> it's right trying to find whatever. So you have to be very careful about understanding where does it stop working. Another basic example, I think not anyone can check to ask one of these AIs about themselves. What do they know? What is your bio? What have you done in life? And I don't know for you, but for me, it was completely off. There will be some truth and there will be half of it where there was nothing true. It was talking about companies I never built I, and I didn't even know about. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty bad. And obviously there is a lack of source if it's giving you a source, but actually it's not connecting to what it's telling you, that's not better. Yeah, I just searched for mine right now and it's still incorrect. <laughs> it's directionally correct, but it's incorrect. It's saying stuff that I was an associate at McKinsey, which I was a senior expert at McKinsey. I've been doing Chameleon apparently since 2016, which again, I have not. I've been doing it since 2021. Strive Capital since 2018, I've not. I've been doing it since 2010. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, as we have seen, this stuff keeps improving over time. It's directionally correct. Like, it's not totally, totally wrong, but it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> so I think it's more a question of not just criticize, but be realistic about what you can expect. 
and use these products intelligently. For some use case, it's perfectly good. The minute you want to be precise, the minute you have to depend on it, the minute the life of someone depends on it, then you have to think very carefully, am I using the right tool for the right job? At the end of the day, if you have expertise in the domain, really exercise a lot of critical thinking. If you have some expertise or some understanding of the... This is not to replace critical thinking. This is to increase productivity. You can go faster because you can get direction on stuff. You can double click on stuff quicker. So to your point, it's about horses for courses. It can really augment you. It can make you go faster, but it's not going to replace you exercising critical thinking, doing triangulation of data, which is a good practice in any case. Even in the good old days, it was a good practice. That doesn't change. Maybe we can go into verticals, things that we are seeing around the use of generative AI and verticals that we're seeing in terms of use. We've talked about chat. Do we want to talk a little bit more about that? I think in terms of chat, it's obviously a good question. Huh? The, the dream has been for a while huh? to have your own personal agent uh, helping you on a different task, replacing in a way or giving you your own personal assistant. That's the dream of many people. Obviously, it can do some of this. Huh? There have been some very successful examples of a chat GPT helping you build your um, dream travel in a specific location, finding restaurants, finding hotels, finding stuff to do. So there are some use cases where it can be uh, incredibly useful. Again, I don't think anyone would want to let it do all by itself. So chat is definitely a big part of the game. It's also interestingly like a new UI. If you remember the chat discussions five years ago, chat as a UI to replace apps, uh, for instance, it didn't work. At the time, the ability to communicate with a computer was definitely very difficult. Now you can see that there is a better ability to communicate with a computer. Again, the question is communicate about what and how can you double check what is being said to you. I'm a firm believer there are some use cases where there is a real true benefit and somewhere it's more limited. I think some benefits for me, for instance, will be to generate a long text form from valid uh, points in a specific tone of voice, for instance. So you don't need a ghostwriter anymore. You can have your own personal automated ghostwriter. Or the other way around, to try to summarize text, make it, it more bullet points. I can see some use cases where, where it can have real value. I've seen some startups trying to generate automatically some slides, for instance. You talk about a topic, to have a summary and explanation, and it can generate you slides. The bullet points, to the images, to a specific agenda for the topic. There are some use cases where it can help you start with a template in some ways that you can then adjust. And here it's all about saving time. If you save mm -hmm. 50% of your time by doing that, that's great. That's already a win in my book. Yeah. And maybe to another obvious vertical out of this is coding. We've seen uh, developers, coders tap into figure out pieces of code that they can reuse, etc. There's some complexity to this. Some pieces of code might actually have been used somewhere else. It does require expertise, right? So the person who's actually getting the code should understand what the hell the code is doing, right? To your point, it's about sort of reducing time too. It's about, okay, can I reduce my time to develop this specific module, this specific part of code? So it's really about productivity at the end of it. Yeah, and you have also a fantastic example for documentation. If you want to document code, for instance, apparently some of these models have been really well trained in terms of commenting code. That's definitely one use case. I've definitely heard reports that some developers find themselves 2x, 3x more productive thanks to this tool. When you think about it, we have been used to autocomplete, for instance, for, for a long time. That's all about saving time. If you can do even more than autocomplete, but fully fill some code, and kind of work. And if you ask it to review again, it detects automatic some bug and it corrects itself. 
and you do some iteration and it gets better. That's just amazing. That's probably one way to do it. As you say, you have to review. You still have to apply some additional best practices in terms of security, in terms of coding style. Another good example actually is applying uniformly coding style. That's much easier with such a tool. Another interesting work was to convert from one language to another. This one for me was particularly interesting because there are a lot of projects where you need to upgrade your environment, change OS, change development language, for instance, or upgrade to a new version of that developing language. If you have the ability to accelerate that task by 9x, 10x, this can change dramatically how you see some of these projects. Stuff that was impossible to think about in terms of upgrading suddenly becomes doable. That could change how you architect complex systems and how you manage them over the lifetime. I think about this in a very simple manner. I try and bring it to first principles. For me, what this is allowing is an extra layer of augmentation and productivity. In the same way that, to be very honest, software brought a layer of augmentation in its early days. In the same way that mobile phones and smartphones having these little computers in our hands created a new wave of us having access to information, this is creating yet another level of, of access to information and productivity. And we'll talk about other items like venture capital firms and startups and what's happening in this space, etc. But for me, this is like a platform on which we are having another degree of augmentation. And as any platform, it has great positive things and it also has uh, some negative pieces to it as well. As we were saying, it's not fully trustworthy. It will probably propagate quite a lot of lies in the next few years and things are incorrect. So fact-checking will become more important and all of that. But it is just another layer of productivity that we're adding to our stack in this world of technology development that we've been undergoing over the last few decades, century, I would say. One interesting comment I saw from some people was, as long as you consider it at best as an intern, that's a great tool. And basically what they mean is that you cannot trust the work, you have to have very limited scope, you have to review carefully, potentially rewrite some stuff, you have lower expectation. But if you think that it's truly a replacement for a full high quality software developer, you are probably at this stage today totally wrong. But if you think that you can empower and improve the efficiency of your existing developers by providing them a near-free intern, then that's a big difference. That's a big difference. That's something that was not practical before. And it's at the end of the day, exactly that. It's sort of a first draft. I think it's first draft, how I think about it. First draft text, first draft code, ideas, increase in productivity, maybe talk about other verticals, first draft music, if you're maybe a musician or want to go into music, first draft image or design that you want to use for your new app or for your new website. And it's a first draft. It shouldn't be end of it. It shouldn't be, okay, I'm done. I created a new logo for my company. It's cool. Yeah. And magically, then you notice, we'll get back to that later, there's a little bit of a watermark <laughs> in there from Getty Images or something. Yeah, there were some examples where the image were coming out with uh, the original watermark. Image is very interesting because that can be used, I think, pretty well to apply, for instance, some sort of consistent style. You might have an original set of image and you want to say, you know what, I want to apply this type of style to all this image. And this would have been a work that would have required in normal times a lot of work to have graphic designer, graphics do that that work on some images and change the style. And okay, you want a Picasso style or not? It's okay, I can do it, but it will take me days. And here you have it in seconds. So I think there are definitely, for some stuff, some brand new opportunity where it's truly from zero to one, meaning that you could not imagine doing it at scale. 
And even situation where what you achieve is good enough. If you need a picture for an, an article to convey a message, you don't need to go too crazy. Some easy AI uh, generation uh, trying two or three times different prompt and correcting it a bit might be totally enough versus trying to find something for free that doesn't really match or spending some money with a real graphic designer, but who can afford that? Again, horses for courses, as always, but it's, it's a great moment that we're living in, despite all the negatives that we just mentioned. A couple of shout outs in terms of platforms out there. I think we've talked about Stable Diffusion from Stability AI. They're having their own issues as well, but obviously massively used for the creation of images. We talked about Dolly as part of obviously OpenAI. We've talked about ChatGPT and then GPT-3, GPT-3.5, GPT-4 from OpenAI. We talked about Bard from Google. So there's a bunch of tools out there. Also important, we'll come back to the whole notion of open source versus not open source to sort of specify that even OpenAI, although it has open in the title, is actually seen today as a proprietary platform, not as an open platform. Indeed. We'll talk about some movements that happened around OpenAI later on because it was initially not-for-profit and now it's unclear what it actually is. Maybe it's a for-profit. But there's a lot of great platforms out there that really can enhance your work. A lot of great things as well have happened in other fields of artificial intelligence. The work that DeepMind initially had done around gaming, that DeepMind has done around biotech. We'll come back to DeepMind. Obviously, this is a company that was acquired by Google, I believe, in 2014, that now has been merged. We'll talk about some of the movements that Google has been doing around that. So a lot of really interesting things happening beyond sort of the more generalist use cases of this, like generating text, generating code, generating images, things that are very, very specific to specific fields and verticals that have created quite a lot of value. If we don't just talk about generative AI, but to be fair, the topic today is mostly around generative AI. There are non-generative AI that have been quite transformational. And we have seen DeepMind in biotech, in gaming, providing some incredible advances in the field. Obviously, we have AI around self-driving. Tesla is probably leading the charge. It's still <laughs> probably not yet full self-driving, whatever people say today. But it's definitely improving over time. And it's definitely leaps beyond what we were used to even three, five years ago. Yes. Exciting days. I'm a computer engineer by background. I remember developing what we would call Mickey Mouse type AI applications and software pieces. And I remember developing this game, uh, which was a game of, um, I think it was called Connections, the game, a very simple game where you have to go from one side to the other of the board. I was shocked that at some point the game was beating me like 10 out of 10. I just couldn't beat the game anymore. And it was just sheer brute force. It was functional programming using heuristics, right? So functions that figure out, are you closer to the end goal or not? And it's just basically the computational power of the machine was just beating me because it was going down all the branches and it was just, okay, no, no, this is the branch I need to go through and I'm going to kick his ass. I'm pretty sure the machine didn't think kick his ass because machines don't think, as we said at the beginning. But it's a little bit scary sometimes when you see it in action, even if you were the one that coded it in the first place. I think part of the challenge of a lot of these AI platforms and this sort of new revolution of AI that we're seeing is something like explainability. Can we explain what the actual algorithms are doing? At some point, they become so opaque that even the developers might not fully understand what the code is doing. And that's when we might get into, into trouble. But before we get into trouble, let's talk about the big guys. Who are the big guys right now in the market? Good question. And I guess for that, we can use some uh, leaderboards. For instance, there is the LMC's org um, leaderboard for chatbots. Here, it's ranked by uh, ELO ranking. And as of May 25, 
which is our latest ranking. Um, we have ChatGPT from OpenAI as number one. And then we have another startup as OpenAI, very well-funded startup and actually built by ex-OpenAI people, Anthropic, with their cloud model, cloud V1, cloud instant V1. And then we have ChatGPT 3.5 by OpenAI. And then we have others, Vicuna, we have Palm from Google. We have another Vicuna, we have Koala. We have quite a few others. And I want to note that has been another one that was recently released, an LLM from the UAE. And we'll talk more about it in terms of open source versus closed source. So another LLM called Falcon 40B, meaning 40 billion parameters, is doing very well. There is a lot of action from either big startups, big enterprise, or actually government-funded labs. Very, very exciting times. If we look at the usual suspects, we've already talked about open AI with ChatGPT being at the forefront of it. Obviously now at the release four, which you can get access to if you subscribe for the premium payment every month. The Microsoft partnership that was announced initially was a potentially 49% buyout. Then it was sort of positioned as an investment by Microsoft of around $10 billion. I'm not really sure if we know the exact amounts yet, but clearly Microsoft is putting a lot of its capital <laughs> behind it and it's really using it across the board for Bing, for Microsoft Office and a variety of other tools. The whole notion that open AI at its inception was more of a not-for-profit organization and now it's really becoming more of a profit organization, that in and of itself creates an arms race, obviously Google, <laughs> because... Google are the AI guys. I mean, they came up with a whole transformer techniques. It's only fair that they have a stake in it. I'm being facetious, of course. We've talked about Google in previous episodes. They probably have some of the top talent globally in the artificial intelligence field. They've been pioneers in the creation of languages, techniques, etc. One point is that Google probably has the most at stake. Google has the most to lose because in some way, a chat interface might be seen as a perfect replacement for a search box. Instead of having a lot of answers, lots of ads, you just have a clear, straightforward answers, as long as you can trust it, obviously. So that's Google that's in the most risky position of being disrupted. And it's their whole business, basically, because 80% of Google revenues, profits are coming from search. So they better be good and react fast on this, or they really at a risk to, to lose their cash core. And we saw how susceptible they are. I think the, the point you made, Bertrand, is spot on. How susceptible they are in terms of value. They sort of rushed bar to the market, <laughs> and they lost 100 billion market cap <laughs> that <laughs> <Yes>. day <laughs> because the Bard made factual errors and stuff like that. But by the way, one of these tools is making factual errors, just to be clear. I started actually using it side by side with GPT-4. I find actually Bard sometimes is, is more accurate and more interesting. So maybe catching up, I'm not sure. There's been a lot of movements. They put AI at the center of everything. There's even the sort of meme of the summary of Sundar's <laughs> statements at Google I.O., where it's AI, 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 I think he said AI many times. And probably one that shouldn't be really neglected is the formal merger of DeepMind with Google Brain. So DeepMind was an acquisition. It was ran at arm's length. And Google Brain was effectively ran by Jeff Dean, the incomparable Jeff Dean, and was more focused on internal things for Google and sort of next level things for Google. They've now merged. This new entity is now led by the former CEO of DeepMind. A bit unclear on Jeff Dean's role. He's chief scientist. Seems like he reports still to Sundar directly, so it seems like a two-in-a-box structure, although he's not formally the CEO. But Jeff does what Jeff does, I guess. So we'll see what comes out of this. 
over the years, I kept hearing these stories that there was this sort of conflict between brain and deep mind where they just had different philosophies. They competed for resources. They competed for a variety of things. So I think Sundar sort of said, no, 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 you guys are just, just going to have to align and work together and figure this out because this is it. But it's a big deal. It's a big deal that they've merged those two entities effectively, very significant entities. Microsoft, for sure. I mean, we talk about their partnership with OpenAI, as we have seen with the last Build conference. Sundar Pichai is also all in on AI. It's AI everywhere. It's ChatGPT integration with every Microsoft product. It was not just about Bing. It was about Office. It's not just Office. It's Windows. So it's really an integration of AI in every piece of every product. So it's significant investment from the biggest players. One we didn't talk much yet, but I think we should is Meta. They have an incredible, an incredibly strong AI team and department led by Yann LeCun. And they have applied this at scale, obviously, for their advertising work, but also for their headset, their Oculus headset, and to create success to do a lot of things. And one interesting thing, and we'll talk more about it, but they have been in some ways maybe surprisingly leading some of the open source efforts in AI. So taking a very different approach. And maybe one actor we have to talk about, obviously, is Apple. Even with the last WWDC, I cannot say we have seen a lot. I think Apple approach is, first, nothing is open source. <laughs> Two, we barely talk about AI. Actually, it looks like they made a special effort not to pronounce the word AI once. They will talk about deep learning. And more importantly, they will just talk about how some features are better. Better predictive text input, for instance. And that's it. Or they would use for the, the, the new headset, the Vision Pro, they would use AI, obviously, to recognize your fingers. So they recognize your eye movements more efficiently and very precisely. So it's more an AI behind the scene that is making some new experiences possible, but it's really a behind the scene approach and let's not share too much with anyone. Obviously, one interesting piece is that most Apple products have very big AI capacity in terms of learning or inference. In terms of hardware, they are, you could argue, leading the charge in terms of how much AI optimized hardware and AI capable hardware they have put in the hands of everyone. And last but definitely not the least, let's not forget the Chinese. <laughs> Baidu has been doing things around AI for many years. There isn't a huge amount of noise yet, but we'll see at some point whether there will be or not. Tencent, given their gaming background, etc., I'm sure has done significant things around it. And then probably the most used AI-enabled <laughs> app in the world, or one of the most used, TikTok from ByteDance. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting to see what's going to happen around that. It's not necessarily generative AI in the sense that we are discussing in this episode. But by the time we launch the episodes, there might be some announcements from our, some, for some of our Chinese brethren. And this concludes episode 43, our first episode on artificial intelligence and in particular generative AI. In this episode, we touched upon the definitions of artificial intelligence, AGI, why it's meaningful now, why AI didn't take off 10, 15 years ago. We also set the record state on what's happening with generative AI. We discussed key verticals where AI has had a significant impact. And we ended by talking about what the big guys, the Googles, OpenAIs, Microsofts of the world are doing. Next episode, will conclude our two-part episode on artificial intelligence and generative AI. Thank you, Bertrand. Thank you, Nino. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt 
and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.